Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. I was sitting with my three-year-old grandson the other day coloring. We had a box of a dozen or so big fat crayons that Sabina had cleverly bought, cleverly because they're specially formulated to wash off of just about anything, which anyone who has ever spent time with a three-year-old knows is a non-negotiable option. But as I sat there enjoying the moment of coloring with a crayon, and I admit it, I really did enjoy it, especially the smell, I started thinking, which for me is always a bad practice. First, I thought about that magnificent box of crayons that I had when I was in second grade that had 64 colors in it. It also had a bit of technology in the box, a crayon sharpener, which I'm happy to report it still has. I know this because I went down to the office supply store the next day to buy myself a box. Anyway, my grandson and I sat there coloring, and of course, every time I went to grab a particular color, he saw me reaching for it and being three immediately grabbed it. Naturally, that made me want to get sneaky. You can see how quickly I became three years old. So I distracted him and grabbed the blue crayon while he wasn't looking. I quickly learned that trying to pull one over on a three-year-old results in a reaction that is pretty similar to what would happen if you wrapped yourself in raw flank steak and jumped into a pit of Komodo dragons. Anyway, the next day, freshly back from the office supply store, I opened my new box of crayons and started looking at the colors. I recognized a lot of them, but some I didn't, and some of the colors that I vividly remember weren't in the box. For example, raw umber, blue-gray, and violet blue weren't there. I loved those colors. We all had our favorites, right? Happily, a few other favorites, cornflower, red-orange, burnt-orange, and burnt-sienna were still there, but a few new colors had popped up as well. Macaroni and cheese, jungle tree, cerulean, and wild strawberries had all found a place in the box. And by the way, I love how these things smell the same, even though they're all differently colored. I remember being slightly disappointed when I'd sniff the tangerine crayon and it smelled just like burnt sienna. I'll do an episode about smell one of these days, but suffice it to say that it's one of our most primitive senses, buried deep in the limbic brain. A whiff of something important can whisk you away in a time machine faster than just about anything. And so many of them have been buried deep since childhood. Crayons, Play-Doh, some of the spices I mentioned in an earlier episode, baking bread, that wild, almost feral smell of red tomatoes on the vine in your grandparents' garden baking in the sun. Now, like I said, I'll come back to smells in another episode, but for now... Let me ask you a question. Have you ever given any thought to just what colors are? 
I have because I do a lot of photography and also because I'm a naturalist. I know, for example, that there are certain colors that animals can see that we can't because the rods and cones in our retinas aren't sensitive to them. For example, pit vipers, which are a type of snake that you don't want to run into, can see infrared light. Spiders and insects can see ultraviolet light way out on the other end of the spectrum, out there beyond violet. Cephalopods, like octopi, can only see blue. So what are colors exactly? Well, they're simply wavelengths of light that hit the retina in our eyes when they reflect from a surface. To be a little bit more specific, a banana reflects light with a wavelength of 580 nanometers, which we see as yellow. The apple next to it reflects light at about 650 nanometers, which, when it strikes the cones in our eyes, we interpret as red. Our eyes, which are super sensitive to light intensity, that's the job of the rods in our eyes, we can actually see a small number of photons, for example. They're most sensitive to green, which is probably why night vision goggles show everything in that color. Now, we see colors across what's called the visible spectrum, which we all had to memorize in science class as the acronym ROY G BIV. The letters stand for red, orange, yellow, that's ROY, G for green, blue, indigo, violet for BIV. Anything below red in the spectrum is called infrared, which we can't see, but we can feel it. That's heat. And anything above violet is called ultraviolet. We can't see that either, but we can see its effects as skin cancer and eye damage if we get too much of it. That's why the ozone layer in the atmosphere is so important. Ozone, by the way, is really interesting stuff. When ultraviolet light from space strikes oxygen in the atmosphere, some of the oxygen molecules, O2, get broken up into single oxygen atoms, which then combine with oxygen molecules to create O3, which we know as ozone. This really weird, unstable molecule chemically blocks a lot of the UV light that would otherwise make us irretrievably crispy. So the next time you see one of those gorgeous pictures from the International Space Station that shows the thin, ephemeral, fragile atmosphere that surrounds Earth, be thankful. Scientifically, it's something of a miracle that it's there at all. Apricot. Cornflower. Orange, silver, asparagus, forest green, orchid, sky blue, bittersweet gold, Pacific blue, spring green, black, goldenrod, peach, tan, blue, granny smith apple, periwinkle, tickle me pink, beautiful, gray, plum, Timberwolf, blue-green, green, purple mountain's majesty. These are the colors of the crayons in my 64 crayon box. Tumbleweed, blue-violet, green-yellow, raw sienna, turquoise-blue, brick-red, indigo, red-violet-purple, brown, lavender, red-orange, Violet red, burnt orange, macaroni and cheese, red violet. A lot of them are pretty obvious. Variations on red and blue and orange and green, for example. But some of them are less obvious or completely unknown, like umber, sienna, 
ochre, sepia, indigo, and cerulean. So I thought I'd introduce you to a few of them because they have really interesting histories. White, burnt sienna, magenta, robin's egg blue, wild strawberry, cadet blue, mahogany, salmon, wisteria, carnation pink, marvelous, scarlet yellow, cerulean, melon, sea green, yellow green, chestnut, olive green, sepia, and yellow orange. Let's start with some of the darker earth tones in the box. Umber, sienna, ochre, and sepia. Umber is a natural brown pigment that contains iron and manganese oxide. It's darker than ochre and sienna, and in its natural form, it's called raw umber. But when it gets heated, it turns much darker, and it's then called burnt umber. That was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Sienna also gets its color from iron oxide and manganese. In its natural state, it's sort of a yellowish-brown color, and it's called raw sienna. But just like umber, when it's heated, it changes color. It turns to a reddish-brown, and then it's called burnt sienna. And by the way, its name comes from the city where it was most likely first formulated, Siena, a Renaissance-age center for the arts. Now, ochre is a form of clay, and the color comes from mixing ferric oxide with different amounts of clay and sand. Ochre isn't a single color. It can range from yellow to a sort of a deep orange or brown color. And then we have sepia. The name comes from the Greek word sepia, which means cuttlefish. Why? Because the ink found in cuttlefish, like most critters related to squid, is a rich brown color, and the ink sacks were once collected by fishermen to sell to artists as the base for a paint color. Okay, let's switch gears now and move away from the earth tones towards something a little more vibrant. I want to talk about indigo, which is a deep, rich blue color. The name comes from the Latin word for Indian because the dye was originally imported to Europe from India. Remember that it's also the I in Roy G. Biv, the colors of the visible color spectrum. Indigo is made from the flowers of a plant called true indigo. Its Latin name is Indigofera tinctoria. The pigment is created by harvesting the plants and then heating and fermenting them in a tank. The resulting liquor is then treated with an alkaline solution and then oxidized. The indigo pigment settles to the bottom of the tank. Now, indigo has a really interesting history. There's a record of it being used in Peru in 4000 BC. So it's been around as a cultivated plant for a long time. Somewhere along the way, it made its way to North America when Eliza Lucas brought it to colonial South Carolina. It flourished there and it became the second most important cash crop in the colony after rice. Before the Revolutionary War, a third of the value of all exports from the American colonies was indigo. Now, for some colors, I like the sound of their name as much as the colors themselves. Chartreuse. What a great word. It's also a great color. Chartreuse is a yellow-green pigment. In fact, let me interrupt myself here for a second to tell you about a very cool resource I discovered that you should take a minute and go visit. If you go to www.crayola.com slash explore dash colors, you'll find an interactive page where you can see all the colors with an explanation of what each one is. But be careful. 
kind of a rabbit hole, keep a snack handy, you're going to be there for a while. In French, Chartreuse means charter house. This is the name that was given to the monasteries where monks from the Carthusian order lived beginning in the 11th century when St. Bruno established the order. The monasteries were eventually called charter houses because they were chartered by Philip the Bold, otherwise known as the Duke of Burgundy, in 1378. In 1764, the monks began producing a yellowish-green liqueur, and it became known as chartreuse. Finally, I want to talk about another color with a name that I love, cerulean. What a great word. It's a beautiful variant of blue, and it just sounds like the color of rolling, sun-splattered ocean waves. It's made from a chemical combination of cobalt and tin, called cobalt stannate, which yields its deep, rich color. Well, now that we've talked about the gorgeous colors in the Crayola box, let me tell you about a few that you'll never see. And I mean colors that you literally can't see. And I'm not talking about colors that lie outside the bounds of the visible spectrum. I'm talking about what are called the forbidden colors. Let me give you an example. One of the colors in my box of crayons is called red-orange. It's somewhere between the two colors. Even if you've never seen it, I guarantee you can imagine it. Well, now I want you to imagine the color yellow-blue. Go on, create a picture in your head, just like you did with red-orange. And I don't want you to leap to green, which is what happens when yellow and blue paint get mixed together. I want you to imagine a color that's somewhere between the two, like blue-gray. Having trouble? Well, you're not alone. It's actually not possible to imagine this color combination. Let me explain why. The retina that lines the back surface of our eyes is the physiological equivalent of a piece of camera film, or if you prefer, a digital camera sensor. It's the light-sensitive surface upon which the image of whatever we're seeing forms, so that the brain can make sense of it via the optic nerve that connects the retinas to the brain across the optic chiasma. Deep in the tissue of the retina, are light-sensitive cells called opponent neurons that fire when they're struck by specific colors of light. But here's the deal. The neurons that fire when they're exposed to yellow light are turned off when they're exposed to blue light. Similarly, the neurons that fire when they're exposed to red light are turned off when they're exposed to green light. These pairs of hues, called the forbidden colors, cancel each other out. So it's physiologically impossible to see these colors coming from the same source. I mean, you can see them side by side, but not when they're mixed, like red-orange. Weird, isn't it? Colors. Who knew? Did I make you curious? Good. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.